Welcome to the True Voice Podcast with your host, LaShawn Smith. Hey, welcome to True Voice, where we learn more about today through stories from amazing people. This is season two. I'm your host, LaShawn Smith. Here on True Voice, we talk with people who have remarkable stories that entertain, teach, and offer a human perspective on how today's most pressing topics remain deeply connected to our past. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to you joining us each week. Today, I'm joined by Basil Watson. Basil, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Now, you're a sculptor, an artist. I want to get into some of your background, but you know, just looking at your portfolio, it's beautiful work. Congratulations on everything that you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's start at the beginning of your story. You were uh, born and raised in Jamaica in the late 50s. Your father was an artist uh, who was traveling the world. Tell me more about you know, growing up in a, in a world surrounded by art. Well, my earliest memories there has always been art in my home. I was told that as a toddler, I would stand in, when he brings home new work, I would stand in front of the work looking on most likely in awe. And um, so my, my father's work, and not only his work, but art in general was always around home, art books and so on. So it seemed like a natural thing to me to always be surrounded by art. Now, when you say surrounded by art is, you know, as I envision your home growing up, is it, you know, art on the walls? Is it, you know, sculpted pieces? Uh, give me a visual on what it actually looks like. Well, it would it would have art on the walls, sculptures, art books would be piled all around the home, and then I would visit exhibitions regularly. I remember going to a number of exhibitions. My father had a gallery when I was, I guess, getting bigger, uh, so he the gallery was always there. So I visited regularly when he had shows. So it was always a central part of my my being. What city? Uh, or cities did you grow up in Jamaica? Uh, Kingston. I, I was born and and grew up in Kingston. My father studied in Europe, uh, in London, uh, Holland, Spain, extensively throughout Europe. Great. And then as you started to get exposed to more art, did you find yourself drawn to a certain medium or style? Or, or how did you start to make sense of the different types of art forms and, and kind of figure out which ones spoke to you most? What impacted me most was my father's drawings. I was always drawn to his drawings. The painting, the drawing seemed to be the starting point. Painting was much more complex. And um, I, I developed from that stage my passion for drawing. I, I tried to copy his drawings. As, as a young adult, at the point where you started to really get serious about art, um, it sounds like that was around high school. You know, what was the inflection point that really kind of drew you in where you started to get more serious? I think I had a, a teacher at, at high school who actually my father taught, and he was very encouraging and remained encouraging throughout his life, Alexander Cooper. So he really pushed my drawing and developed a strong love for drawing from that stage. So I decided at that point that uh, art is something that I wanted to pursue. Still undecided about what aspects of art, but I knew I wanted to pursue art. 
Now, did you find yourself drawing, you know, specific things, uh, drawing all the time? Uh, once you're, you know, you kind of started to embrace that, how did it shape how you spent your days? Well, I was drawing mainly the figure, and my father is also a figurative artist. So that is the challenge that I always saw as, you know, most interesting. So in high school, I was drawing the figure a lot, and that is where I developed my passion for drawing the figure and was trying to find out how I could extend my involvement in art beyond just drawing. So I decided I'd go to the Jamaica School of Art. Fantastic. Now, is that a formal program that is multi-year? How long is that? Yes, it's a, it's a four-year, now offers a bachelor's degree. Uh, when I was going, it was a diploma. It was, a four, it was always a four-year course that introduced you to all aspects of art um, or most aspects of art. The basics, sculpture, painting, drawing, ceramics, jewelry, textiles. So it, it was a fairly comprehensive program. Right. Now, sometimes high school students, especially artists, have uh, you know, some, some struggles paying attention and focusing to kind of make that leap to you know, university or college. Did you find yourself having to really focus on other subjects to get through them, you know, or were you, you know, kind of really just drawn to art and kind of ignoring some of those other subjects? I was ignoring some of the subjects, actually. <laughs> I wasn't scheduled to do art in high school, but I was skipping French classes, which ah. I regret a little bit because the language would have helped me. But uh, I skipped French classes to go to the art room. And then they switched me from French and officially put me in the art program. But um, yeah. That's interesting. Now, your father, having you know been around this world uh, as a professional, did he know other people at the school? Did that, you know, was that um, a benefit or a hindrance, you know, kind of having his personality around or, or were they kind of separate? Well, he was the first principal for the art school and helped. Oh, wow helped to establish the original curriculum for the school. So his influence and, and presence was there. He wasn't teaching there when I went, but he was always an examiner until very late, uh, an external examiner for their uh, graduation program. And his influence was always there, whether in the art school or in the art community at large in Jamaica. What do you recall as, uh, you know, one of the more memorable experiences you had as you started to kind of, uh, you know, develop yourself as an artist in art school? Well, one of the, the things I remember was my first day in figure drawing course classes. And I, I thought I handled drawing the figure fairly well. And in the first session I was drawing, felt good about what I was doing. The model took a break and I, you know, everybody gets up to walk around to look to see what everybody else is doing. And I was amazed at the amount of talent that was in the room. And I think at that point I recognized that, hey, I am not nothing special. I need to put in the work because, you know, talent is, the talent is there surrounding. Right. So, and that, that gave you the motivation to really just kind of uh, 
double down and uh, really practice and apply yourself? Well, I, I was always motivated, but it made me know that uh, I had to find ways of directing my career and pursuing it consistently in order to, to make any headway. There was nothing guaranteed to me in work. Um, work was the cornerstone. Yeah, and that's a great insight to have at that age. Now, when you finished uh, and graduated college, you opened your own art studio. Was that always the plan? Yes, it was. I saw my father as, a, as an example. He had made a career um, out of, as an artist and was, was doing well. And I figured that that was the way for me to go as well. Open a studio, do the work, then find ways of exhibiting, marketing my work. Now, help me understand how an art studio is run. Are you, I mean, obviously you're the creative director and the, the creator of these, uh, you know, of your pieces. Are you also responsible for kind of the operations in the business or would you have a partner for that? No, it, it was a very simple, it was and remains a very simple operation. It's a space where I work from time to time. I might have people assisting me in specific projects but it is basically a one-man operation. There's a space where I I would get models. It, um, when I wanted models, I would draw, sculpt, and um, do the work. So, you know, I had minimum overheads, minimum other people involved. It was basically a lonely operation. That's uh, an interesting kind of uh, approach where you know, you really have control over all those aspects. Now, you focus on figurative clay sculpting. Uh, tell me more about what that style is and how you decided to focus there. Well, I, I did experiment with a variety of media, carving wood, welding metal, carving stone, whether casted or terracotta fired works. But clay always gave me the most flexibility and uh, spontaneity in terms of exploring the human figure. So it translated very easily and quickly from drawing to sketching and modeling in clay. So that remained my main medium. I do, I, I wouldn't rule out any other medium that I don't do it. I've done so many other different things, but now I carve a bit of stone and uh but clear remains my major medium yeah no the work is is beautiful how how long i mean i know different pieces take different times but as an example if you have an idea for for something how long does it take for you to from start to finish to complete a uh you know a figure sculpture and how long does the the person need to be in the room with you uh, if you're taking inspiration from a real person well, it usually starts with probably a one-third life-size figure sketch. So it starts with drawing, actually, and then from the drawing, I decide. And the drawings are usually quick, very gestural, not much detail, looking for the big picture. Then with a, a one-third life-size sketch, which would take me probably three sessions, and a session being about three hours, in between sessions, I would always go and fiddle with the work and touch it and, you know, work out certain aspects of the design or the anatomy 
and so on. So that would take about three sessions working at that scale. Now, if I decide to go larger, it can take me months. It can be, you know, two, three, four months, depending on what scale I'm going to. I have works that have uh, took me a year, two years to complete. Wow. Is it a um, is it a very structured or free flowing process? You know, let's say you're working on something for a month or two. Mm. Are you kind of moving all around various parts of the body, or are you saying like, "Hey, today I'm working on this one leg or this one section," or, or do you just kind of uh, go with the flow and and uh, kind of get inspired and, and work on any part that speaks to you? It goes in stages. So the first stage is is solving the big picture and minimum detail so whatever the gesture the scale of it i have to scale it up getting the the gesture and the posture correct so at that stage i am working around the figure with very little attention to detail then i would take segments and tighten the this the the design and so the first stage is getting the big picture. The second stage is getting the, the secondary big shapes a bit more accurate and tightly done. And then the final stage, I would hone in on a specific detail. So I might be working on the hands or I, I generally leave, say, the, the portraiture, the, the head as the last. So the, it's a space holder is there for a head, which is the egg, and the proportions are there. But in the final stages, I now go into just focusing on the head or whether I'm focusing on the feet. And um, so those are the stages. But throughout each stage, I have to keep checking the, the big picture because I might decide to make changes as I grow with the piece. I might move the head or, you know, move an arm or things like that. So I'm constantly revisiting the previous stages. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So how do you decide and when do you decide kind of the pose? Is this while you're sketching and you're kind of figuring that out and kind of figuring out what emotion you want to evoke? Yes. So the drawing has become the exploratory stage for me where I'm learning about the, the subject, deciding what I want to sculpt, and um, then moving on. Once I find something that I figure has that dynamic three-dimensional quality, and I, move, uh, I go to the sculpture, the drawing then fades, and the sculpture. And I work a lot from the live model. So even doing the sculpture, there are subtle or sometimes a little bit more than subtle changes in the sculpture as um, the model and the, co the connection and communication between the model and myself as that develops. Or the, I should say the three-way connection between the model, myself, and the work. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Is there a rule of thumb of like, you know, 50-50 or some type of percentage on when you typically use live models or not, or is it a, a certain type of work? Uh, well, the only time I don't use models is when I have commission and I am sculpting somebody that 
is not available, whether they are passed or whether they are not available for modeling. But outside of that, I tend to always use a model. So I use models quite a bit. Uh, I see a lot. And if you don't have a model available, you are using photographs and other types of media? I tend, well, as I said, if I'm doing a commission, it's a, a specific person, then I would be using photographs and uh, or videos uh, or both. Other than that, I usually, there, there is so much manual labor in sculpture that there is always time for manual labor and then working with a model doing a sculpture. How, how do you build the rapport with a live model? So, I mean, if they're there for hours or days or maybe sometimes weeks, how do you build the rapport so they're comfortable and relaxed, uh, but at the same time, you know, trying to preserve this emotion that you're trying to embody in the sculpture? Well, what tends to happen is that um, a rapport develops. I consider myself to be a fairly reticent person. But when I'm working, I, I, I hear myself talking a lot and asking questions, developing communication with the model. Uh, that allows the model to relax and um, be herself. I usually try to take from the model as opposed to imposing on the model. So if a model suggests dance, then I will find something within dance. I will use her energy as opposed to trying to impose my vision or ideas on the model and it doesn't suit the model. So what it is, is, is that communication, finding what the model expresses and, and using that. So it's, it's not difficult for the model to, to maintain that energy because it's, it's not outside of her. It's um, or him, it's, you know, part of their being. So it comes naturally. Yeah, no, that's a super fascinating insight into your process. Thanks for, for sharing that. Now, you know, back to your, your art studio, you were running this uh, for, I think, over 20 years from uh, early 80s to uh, just around uh, 2000, 2002. Now, during that process, you obviously, as you mentioned, had, you know, uh, inspiration from your father and maybe others. Uh, you're you're running this gallery, and uh, you would start doing exhibits. And as I understand, you know you had the idea of creating public structures, you know, as a way both to promote your art and you know to to uh, earn earn a living. What kind of brought you that idea to transition into public sculptures, and uh, how is that process different than what we were just talking about? Well, studying sculpture, the first things that comes one's attention are public sculptures, just by the nature of what they are. Um, they have the most far-reaching effect and communication with, with, with a large number of people. So the idea of working on a monumental scale, having works that are out in public that will communicate with an with a entire community, society, has always been fascinating. So there were sculptures in Jamaica that, public sculptures that made an impact on me. And so I always had that dream of creating a public sculpture that would stand out within the community. I have now gone past 
a sculpture and done quite a few. But um, in the early stages, that was my push to find ways to convince people that I am capable and to give them the vision to try and uh, sponsor public sculptures. So, you know, it, it was a, from pretty early a decision that, hey, this is something that uh, I should try and promote. And so it started with, I had actually, when people saw my work, they got the idea that public sculpture is possible and that I am capable of doing public sculpture. Mm -hmm. Inspiring others. Yes. And then um, I did, uh, my brother and I, my brother is a sculptor as well. And we used to have adjoining studios and we decided to try and do an exhibition of large scale monumental sculptures and get them. The, the major problem with monumental sculptures is, is financing them, getting them sponsored. Dreamed up a plan of writing out the proposal of what we wanted to do, the first public sculpture exhibition in Jamaica. We circulated the letter to people in influential positions or staunch supporters of the arts. And we got four sponsors each. And we each did four monumental sculptures, put them in a park and had this uh, sculpture park exhibition. This was in the late 80s, early 90s, I think 91. But it started in the 80s because the entire project took us uh, a little over two years. And uh, in 91, we had the first sculpture park exhibition in Jamaica. Wow, and that's amazing. It was really well received and uh, really opened a lot of eyes to what is possible. Now, when you, um, you know, you have a, a sibling who is also doing similar work. Uh, what was the difference in the styles or the approaches between the type of sculpting and the work you did and uh, what your brother produced? Well, we we had similar influences and so on, but personalities carried us in different directions. I tend to be a lot more spontaneous and um, than my brother and outgoing and worked in a more classical form. He tended to still explore the human figure, but deal more with abstraction, ended up, um, he has, he does a lot of wood carving and metal construction pieces. So the media is different and we, we have gone slightly in divergent ways. I, I tend to be the more classical in, in my approach. And he right. he's more abstract, but still with the human freedom. Super interesting. I mean, that's just a ton of talent uh, all in the same family. Very impressive. Now, one of the things you did was um, you convinced uh, or you, you created and sold a concept of building a sculpture for the uh, national cricket team uh, or stadium in uh, in Jamaica. You know, how do you get the confidence and the the idea to to go approach that? Like, tell me that story and, and kind of how you got that to the finish line. Well, that happened after the the sculpture park exhibition. So the confidence was growing and I've never really been short of confidence in, in my ability to do it once I can conceive it. But we seeing other stadia around the, the world 
with signature pieces, whether it be football, soccer, cricket, track and field. I decided that uh, the cricket stadium could do well. It was at a time when West Indies cricket was at a height. We were champions of the world. We were doing very well. So, we, you know, the idea of celebrating our, our heroes uh, and our cricketing heroes, our cricketing heroes really were embraced by the community as a whole. So we figured that it is something that the stadium needed. So we approached the board about putting up a, a cricketer and one was chosen. Actually, a schoolmate of mine, uh, Michael Holden, was my first uh, choice, but they decided that uh, an older, more um, pioneering cricketer, George Headley, should be the first. And um, they have not gone further since then, but it, it still stands in front of the stadium doing well. Wow, that's cool. Now, taking that and extending it more broadly, uh, there's definitely an, an appreciation for Jamaican art and, uh, you know, across mediums, but, you know, including the type of work you do, you know, what do you think is the driver uh, behind that historically? How, how do you think that came about for, for there to be not just a appreciation uh, inside the country, but globally? Well, I think the Jamaican brand is very strong. Uh, Jamaica gained independence in 1962. And when we did, there was a strong push towards developing a Jamaican identity or not developing, but expressing our Jamaican identity. And so we, we, we developed be politics, dance, um, the arts, sports, cricket, um, track and field. So our international brand generally in culture, I would say, and in the general attitude of the people has been very dynamic. And um, I think the fine arts follows that, that, that lead or is part of leading that charge, I would say. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. And uh, I mean, it's great to hear about that type of coordinated effort and we can see the results, uh, which are um, you know, pretty impressive. Now, at what point did you uh, uh, decide to come to America and what was the impetus there? Well, my father always spoke about challenging the the best that the world has to offer. And uh, he studied extensively in Europe and spoke about artists from the major artists in Europe, their international pull. Uh, but his decision was to, come to, was to go back to Jamaica and make that statement from Jamaica. My route was a little different. I never really left Jamaica in terms of studying. And I wanted to explore uh, although I've traveled, but um, never really lived any or studied extensively outside of Jamaica, I still got a good foundation, but I wanted to explore a wider market, a more international market. And so Jamaica is an island and an island is an island. It's difficult to, to venture out from Jamaica. It takes so much in terms of shipping, in terms of just connecting. And I've always found that the support for, for the arts comes from a strong connection with a community. So it was difficult to 
find get any footing in the United States or outside of Jamaica without connecting with a more international community. So I decided that uh, probably the best way to do it or to try it and see if it works is to live outside of Jamaica. So I decided to, to do that. That's fantastic. Once you got to the States, what did you notice that was, you know, different or anything that uh, maybe was uh, unexpected from the, you know, art scene uh, and, and your interaction with artists in Jamaica compared to the U.S.? Well, I, I realized that I needed to find a way to connect to the community because coming here, my first, I sent my portfolio to three of the prominent galleries in Atlanta. And all three sent me rejection letters. They didn't know who I was. They didn't have a good understanding of what my work was about and so on. So I had to step back and take a more slow uh, route, slowly introducing my work in group shows and uh, small shows in galleries and so on to slowly infiltrate the community, make them more aware of my work. So. That is that was my initial experience. And then the cultural aspects. Jamaica has a more homogenous culture. Everybody is Jamaican and everybody understands, have the same national heroes, same cultural roots, and so on. Here in the United States, there was there are so many different small communities. We have a Hispanic community, the black community, the white community. Eastern European community. So it was difficult to find a way to connect. But I think the basic, my style of my work had a more international flavor. So I think it went across the board and I found a connection with multiple communities. But it was a slow build in terms of creating that connection. I would probably think that the Black community has been the strongest connection but it still goes across the board. And, right. You know, so. Now, you got the opportunity to participate in a symposium, uh, maybe multiple, but uh, in China, in Guatemala. First, tell me, explain to me, um, you know, what, what does this mean to, you know, participate in a symposium? And then, um, you know, share about, you know, one or more of those specific experiences. Well, what countries do, and this is what China seems to do a lot of it, and the city that I went to, Changchun, wanted to develop uh, their tourist product. Um, they are a strong industrial city, but wanted to develop more of a tourist product and figured that art, and in, in particular sculpture, could be a way. So their objective was to get a sculptor from every country in the world to come there and produce a sculpture. Hmm. And so, I was invited as a Jamaican sculptor to go and participate. And it's an all-sponsored trip. You get an honorarium. You spend varying from two, seven weeks, eight weeks. So I ended up spending seven weeks in Changchun, China, creating a sculpture, a monumental sculpture that is, I think, 15 feet high in total. And leaving it there, and it stands in the Changchun Sculpture Park in China. Wow. So while there, 
I was there with 21 other artists and connected with a sculptor from Guatemala. And um, he eventually produced a symposium in Guatemala and invited me to submit to participate. So I, I did participate in the second symposium that I had. Similarly, the idea is to gather sculptors from around the world. This one was 12 sculptors and create sculpture, large monumental sculptures that are left in the country for the benefit of the country. So I went to Guatemala and spent three weeks there carving a two meter cubed uh, block of marble. So that was also interesting. I've been back to China on a wood carving symposium. I went to Egypt last year, a similar symposium where I did a work that was left there. Their idea was also to get a work from every country in the world. And I again represented Jamaica and did a heart. Well, they wanted everybody to give their interpretation of the human heart as a symbol of the heart for humanity. Mm. What's the name of that uh, project if someone wanted to find more about that online? It's the World Youth Forum Heart for Humanity Memorial. Uh, that sounds super interesting. Now you get, you know, all of these experiences, uh, all of the work you've put in over the years, uh, your, you know, your path as a youth, uh, getting exposed to art, you know, this culminates into all the great work you've done. And now I think one of the more interesting projects just in, in you know, from a scale standpoint is some of the work you're now doing on this uh, 18 foot sculpture in Atlanta. So tell me more about how this project came to be and your process and how you're approaching it. Well, I always had my eye out for public sculptures and um, my, my resume is pretty strong in terms of public sculptures. So the city of Atlanta wanted to do sculpture of Martin Luther King. It was, the parameters were that it should be 12 feet tall, mounted on a six foot pedestal. So it would rise 18 feet into the, into the air. So this is twice life size. They put out an international call where anybody from around the world could submit. I understand that they had over 80 submissions. They chose, um, basically you present your portfolio of works you have done and examples of your, your skill as an artist. I was chosen along with two other artists to develop a specific design for the site from that initial 80 plus applications. So at that stage, I developed my design and we went in for an interview presenting our proposal. And um, finally, I was chosen as the, the artist and my proposal was chosen. Well, congratulations on that. Now, you've been working on this already and uh, you're getting close to it being done. Tell me about, I guess, one, working on a public sculpture, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and, uh, you know, any of the changes you had to make to uh, kind of work in today's environment. 
Well, it was always going to be a lonely process. Well, the process started with doing a half, half life size. So this would have been about 36 inches model. Well, I did that and presented that for the interview, but I made changes after being selected. I went back and um, did slight changes to the design. Then once I got the design, I sent that to be digitally scanned and then enlarged. So it would be three feet enlarged four times to 12 feet. That enlargement finally ended up in my studio on Martin Luther King's birthday of this year. So this was February. And wow. shortly thereafter, the pandemic hit. So the, the enlarged scan is reduced about half an inch. It's in styrofoam. And I would model it. So it, it basically was the big picture of what I wanted. Um, and then I, I put clay on it and modeled the details, even made some structural changes as well. So getting into the heart of the work was about the time when the, the pandemic hit, meant, it, the effect was more mental than anything else, because in the first period of the pandemic, one thinks about life and survival and how the pandemic works and so on. So it right. really stalled work in terms of my emotions and energies. And, you know, a lot was given to understanding how one deals with the pandemic as a human being uh, and dealing with the humanity of it. And so the work progressed very slowly in the beginning. So I would say it did stall that process, mainly from an emotional standpoint. You know, once I more or less came to, uh, still trying to come to grips with the pandemic, but learned how to handle it a lot better. And knowing that I had the work to do, you know, I basically worked in solitude, quarantined in my studio. It slowed down in terms of getting the city officials, the model of the king officials to come in and view the work. That slowed down a bit because they had to choose times when they felt that they could travel and uh, social distancing and all those aspects. So I think it has slowed the work a bit. It's a bit behind schedule or what I had hoped would have been the schedule, but um, it is it is very close to completion. You know, for what this represents, I mean, your your portfolio work is amazing in general. This particular project is very timely, you know, in, in a world that's not only balancing the challenges of a pandemic, but uh, more directly addressing some of the challenges that have been around for a very long time around uh, social inequality and racial racial uh, injustice. What does this particular project mean to you, you know, in your career and how you get to use it as a point of expression? Well, Martin Luther King, I was growing into becoming a teen, almost when, a um, little before a teen, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the civil rights movement in the 60s. So I heard a lot. In Jamaica, we are a bit distant from the heart of this civil rights movement, but the, the saying is that when the United States sneezes, Jamaica catches a cold. So the impact 
was definitely there growing up and we saw Martin Luther King as, as a hero. So to get the opportunity to do a sculpture dedicated to Martin Luther King, regardless of the scale of it, you know, was a tremendous honor. And then thinking about the scale and it being a central sculpture for his home city was just tremendous. It is, you know, basically all that one can dream of being a sculptor. So, you know, it, it has been quite an honor. Then the challenge of how do I depict Martin Luther King? Mm -hmm. You know, my initial response was, how do I express the, the struggle, the fight, the angst, the, that the civil rights movement went through? And going through, listening to his speeches even more than looking at photographs influenced my final decision on how I wanted to depict him. And the sculpture, it has engraved on it three quotes. The first I will tell you is, which is the impact that listening to his speeches had on me. The first quote is, darkness cannot eradicate darkness. Only light can do that. And I think mm -hmm. that is the strong message, even in today's dilemma, that we have to look to the light. It's more about how do we promote love from both sides. We have to respond with love and try to promote love in return in order to move forward. So in terms of, you know, our, our present day dilemma and situation and it coming to a head, I think it is very timely in terms of promoting a positive message. Um, we have to look to the light. We have to find ways to move the society forward. While we look at how we have been held back, but even more importantly, how do we move forward? And, um, Absolutely. I think this is where we need to go. Well, and how long ballpark uh, do you have to you unveil it? Are we weeks away or more than that? Weeks away. The, I was hoping to get, well, the, the, foundry, the sculpture is at the foundry. So I have done the creative aspect of it. The mold has been made and the mold is at the foundry. And they are now casting it through the lost wax process. They are casting it in bronze. And the most recent estimate is that it should, it should be finished and ready for installation by the middle of November. Wow. By the middle of November. So from that point, the, the next issue is finding when it's most convenient for the city to do an, uh, an unveiling after the middle of November. Right. Well, congratulations again on you know that whole process. And I'm sure many of us uh, look forward to kind of seeing it once it uh, is unveiled uh, publicly. Thank you. Thank you. As we're wrapping up, I'd like to hear what advice or insight you would share for young sculptors or other artists who are early in their journey 
um, that you think uh, might uh, help them as they're trying to navigate where they head next? Uh, well, for young artists, I would say the first thing is to develop their craft. In any expression, craft is essential to what you have to say and having it understood, appreciated. So technique, technique, craft, craft must be all at all stages of life. We, we have to keep pushing our craft and, and developing it and honing it. So that's the, the first uh, bit of advice. Because I, I, I see a lot of people, you know, coming almost out of the cradle, thinking that they have something to say without figuring out how best to say it. So um, that is why I, I push developing your craft. Secondly, I, I would say um, we have to approach life without fear. So there's no project too big, there's no task too daunting. You have to plunge in. Failure is part of the learning experience and um, nothing beats a failure but a try. Um, so the, we, we need to approach our art without, without fear. Take on big projects, dream big projects, dream big, and, um, and go for it. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic advice. I think, you know, one of the interesting things about your, your journey is that you have, uh, you know, this uh, unique combination uh, that I think uh, many of us aspire to have where, um, you know, you have business sense um, to be, to understand how to kind of, uh, you know, generate revenue from your art. Uh, you have something to say and you have invested in the craft. Uh, so you really have mastery of how to approach execution. So that combination is uh, uh, just really inspiring to see. So uh, thank you for sharing your journey. And I think, uh, in, in, you know, the last question I would ask, as you think about, you know, the projects you want to do in the future, what type of individuals, topics, emotions, other types of things uh, do you see yourself being uh, drawn to as you, as you look forward? Well, looking forward from this present day's vantage point, I see a lot of stories that need to be retold or needs to be told about, especially the, the Black experience and about world history. And so at this point, I am itching to, you know, take on challenges of depicting more about the Black history or world history in a more open and truthful way. So um, this is one of the things that, that I look forward to doing. And also look forward to doing a sculpture that has an iconic iconic uh, status like Statue of Liberty, the Christ statue in Rio de Janeiro, the Eiffel Tower in France, and working on the biggest scale possible. These are some of the things I think about. I love the the inspiration that you drive for, for indeed thinking big. And uh, I think that's a good measure uh, and target for all of us. Mr. Watson, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your story. It was a pleasure sharing whatever I have. And um, it's an honor to be on your, your program. 
Thank you. Tell our listeners uh, where they can find you online. Online, I can be found at Basil Watson, basically, if you Google Basil Watson. Uh, Instagram is, is basil.sculpture. I think my website is Basil Sculpture. So Basil Sculpture gets you, gets you to me. Excellent. We'll make sure those links are in our notes. And thanks, everyone, for joining us today with our conversation with Mr. Watson. That was great to hear both his process, his journey, and uh, the backstory on some of the great work that he's done. Hope you've enjoyed your time. Please leave a great review uh, for wherever you listen to our show. I'm LaShawn. Thanks again. And remember, dream big, stay curious, and always share your true voice. See you next time. This is True Voice.